everybody having fun with all this extra content and the fun to drive? It's oh. so fun. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I love doubling production. Double the fun. Yeah. Which is why we're going to actually have some fun right now, and we're going to do uh, an episode of Ask Sam. Why Yay. do geese make these? Does a bumblebee sneeze? Can a person eat trees? Can a polar bear freeze? Is a kidney stone kind of like a pearl in a clam? Well, I don't know. Ask Sam. Okay, you two lovely human beings. Can you introduce yourselves? I'm Erica Janik. I'm Nick Capodice. Uh What are your jobs? I'm your boss. <laughs> She's my boss. <laughs> I co-host Civics 101 with Hannah McCarthy. We haven't done one of these in a while. Does anyone remember the, the last one that we did? It was a while ago. It was a really long time ago. Well, so, sorry, listeners. Or, or you're welcome, listeners, for those of you who hate this segment. <laughs> okay, we're going to do the first question. Hi, Sam. My name is Juniper, and I live in Northern California uh, in the Northern Bay Area. And there's a lot of open space here that's used for grazing free-range cattle. And so I've become pretty familiar with cow patties. My question is, why do cows have such gross liquid poop? All the other ruminants whose poop I've seen leave behind these nice little pellets. But I've seen cows with poop just smear down their tails and their back legs. So I'm wondering, are they not able to digest grass properly, like, goats and sheep and deer and all the other ruminants do thanks bye hmm that is a good one that is a a good question question. sam i have a quick question before we go into this which is are cows do any other animals have the four stomachs like a cow isn't that what so so ruminant is is literally referring to animals that have a rumen which is another stomach do you have a rumen no, <laughs> no, I don't. I'd be much better off. A rumen of one's own. Did you? <laughs> <laughs> That's the name of this episode. Is because I, I I don't even know where to begin with this one. I think it could be something to do with the quality of the grass they eat. Mm. They eat feed. Cows eat a lot of feed. In addition to, they don't just graze. Dairy cows. Well, even the ones that just graze, though, I'm thinking of the dairy farm that was up the road from my house growing up, that they would graze, they bring them indoors in the winter, but they graze all summer, and, and all summer their poop was gross, too. Maybe cows just actually drink a lot more water, and, like, goats and sheep are actually, like, more parched. That's my guess. I'm going to say that cows are better at drinking water. All right, we'll dig into this one. You guys ready for the patty party? Uh, So the answer came to us from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, Erica's hometown. Uh, I got two replies, an email from a gentleman named Matt Akins, and then also a phone call from this gentleman, Dan Schaefer. The uh, probably most important thing for your listeners to remember is that when passing through a pasture, it's good to keep one eye on the ground. Otherwise, one comes through the pasture with soiled shoes. Is that like by Martha Washington? (laughs) (laughs) He did refer to cow patties as meadow muffins, which I really, really approve of. Okay, so two parts to the answer here. First is biological. Uh, Most ruminants have a different type of large intestine that's, that's longer and then has a structure called the spiral loop. Uh, that forms the pellets. Uh, and and that, that longer large intestine means they absorb much more water from from their food as it passes through their, their digestive tract. And that is probably an adaptation uh, to make them more drought tolerant because they're eating woodier browse uh, versus grass, which has a lot of water in it. And so, you know, cows don't need to extract as much water because they get a lot of it just by eating grass. So that's answer number one. 
And it leads us into that second explanation, which is the diet explanation. They eat a lot of grass, which has a lot of water, which makes their stool more loose. That was my theory. I just want to point out. I said that they had a lot more water. Uh, so Eric nailed it. Nailed it. And which brings me to my surprise for you. Eric, can you turn on the monitor there? Uh, so you have in front of you a Google image search of buffalo poop. Oh, Ooh. there it is. Yeah. So that is so that is just your indication that it's not just cows that have that kind of stool, but basically anything that's in the lowlands and eats a lot of grass has has poop that's kind of like that. Wow, it's, it's quite prodigious in this, <laughs> this Google is. image search. Especially <laughs> this one. One more Dan joke. The other thing to remember is not to stand behind a cow when she coughs. <laughs> He just full of these. He was just full of them. You paid five cents for each one of these all day, all day long. So entertaining. I mean, when you work with cows, I feel like you gotta have a sense of humor. I would hope yeah. so. Okay, next question. Hi Sam, my name is Michelle, and I'm from Lancaster, Pennsylvania. My question is: If human bodies have an average internal temperature of ninety-eight point six degrees Fahrenheit, why do we start to sweat before the outside temperature reaches this point? Are there any other mammals that experience this? Thanks. Wow. Mm. This one we can take a shot at. Okay. Okay, yeah. So I have had to look into this before. Uh, The short version is that mammals and birds are endothermic, which means they regulate their body temperature. And in the case of humans, 98.6 degrees is the temperature to which they regulate. And we do that by sweating and a bunch of other little things to stay cool and shivering and a bunch of other little other things to stay warm. But the main way our bodies generate heat is just through metabolism. The the process of breaking down food and turning it into energy generates substantial heat. So our bodies are like tiny little power plants, uh, which is why they stay at 98.6, even when it's cold outside. And uh, so really, we start to sweat before that point because, because our bodies are like little power plants. They're already generating too much heat. And when it gets too warm outside, we risk overheating. That sounds right. Like, I just feel like you would just keep heating and heating and then you would die. Yeah. And so so our, our cooling mechanisms help to keep our body at that equilibrium state of 98.6 because that's like the thing that distinguishes humans. We're like very good at cooling. So what other animals sweat? Horses was the only one that was the only mammal that I found that also sweats. So why is it that we are the only other mammal that requires this cooling? Because other animals generate energy to move around. Well, it's not that we require it. It's that it's that it's an adaptation that we have become particularly good at. And some evolutionary biologists think it's actually the adaptation that made us successful enough to spread around the globe. But other even though animal other animals and other mammals don't sweat in the same way we do, that doesn't mean they're not sweating. They cool. Yeah. Oh, okay. They have other ways of cooling. So so dogs sweat uh, just the pads of their feet, but it's thought that that's mostly a, a way of generating traction. Mostly other animals cool through other mechanisms besides sweating. Like rolling in the mud and panting. Panting and, and just like having skin. Right. <laughs> just having skin. Standing still for a long time. So I think what this question really is, is like, why is 98.6 the number? Yeah. Yeah. And if we evolved for another, you know, millennia, would it change? You know, would it... As the climate changes? (gasps) Whoa! 
okay, being warm-blooded like this, generating all this heat with your body is is a really expensive proposition evolutionarily. You have to eat, eat all sorts of food in order to regulate your body temperature in this way. It takes a lot of calories. Reptiles and amphibians do not do it. And those are the, you know, the oldest life forms around. So, so why did warm-bloodedness emerge out of the, the, you know, the evolutionary soup? And I found one gentleman who has a hypothetical answer. His name is Arturo Casadevall. I am a professor at the Johns Hopkins uh, School of Public Health. Here's a prompting question here. Uh, can you name a fungus that grows on people? Uh, toenail fungus. Toenail fungus? Um... We have like white nose? No. <laughs> There's a big one I'm missing though. There's a big one that I know. Athlete's foot? Athlete's foot. Athlete's foot. So the funguses that we, the fungal infections that we do suffer from are those sort of like peripheral things uh, that we have no, what are referred to as systemic fungal infections. Systemic, you know, that go, they go directly to the organs that kill you. However, other uh, species uh, that are not warm-blooded uh are highly susceptible to fungal diseases. So to, to help tease this one out, uh, you mentioned white nose syndrome Yeah, sure. in bats. Uh, it's a fungal infection that's currently decimating bats all across North America. Uh, but bats are mammals, right? So why are they getting these fungal infections? They should be resistant. But... So the bats in the summer are 37 degrees, you know, the equivalent of 98, 98 degrees Fahrenheit. And they are resistant to the fungal infection at that time. In the winter their temperature drops to about 10 to 12 degrees because they hibernate and that's how they make it through the winter. And then they become susceptible. So so this is the hypothesis that we, as mammals generally, and, and we specifically, run hot to keep us uh, safe from funguses. Wow, that's fantastic. That's much cooler than I thought. So yeah. fungal, is that like the main reason? Well, so this is just a hypothesis. In fact, it would be very difficult to test it. You'd have to find some sort of fossil record uh, to, to support this evolutionary thesis. You know, it'd be nice if one could find some fossil evidence of it. But not, none of that is going to become easily available because uh, fungal diseases tend to affect soft tissues. You know, you're left only with bones. Basically, it comes down to he thinks that after the meteor hit, the atmospheric conditions are such that it would have been very, uh, very easy for fungus to grow. And so it's, it's likely, he thinks, that there would have been a big fungal bloom around that time. And so therefore, mammals were what rose out of the ashes instead of dinosaurs. And we didn't get a second age of the dinosaurs because they couldn't resist fungus. Right. No, because we're too hot. Yeah, too hot. That's, I'm hot-blooded. <laughs> Check and see. <laughs> a fever of More of your questions and our terrible jokes after a quick break. Okay, next. Wait, is it starting? What does Haley? Is there anything in my teeth? Oh, it's... They I can't feel like see you. they can hear it. Okay. Hi, I'm Haley. This is. Hi, I'm Lemon. Or Emily. And. This is Justin. And uh, we are recording our question live from beautiful Washington State yesterday at lunch. We were talking about dinosaurs or something. And then, Justin, um, you were saying that there was, like, the largest recorded weight of a whale was 100-something tons. Yeah. Is that what? Okay. And then he asked Emily and I how they weigh whales. And we have no idea. Some of the theories included you have to take the weight of the entire ocean, and then you divide it by the number of whales, right? <laughs> and then... <laughs> 
<laughs> you looked it up online. Justin looked it up online. And it kind of was just saying, it was talking about weighing deceased whales, right? Yeah, probably. But there's got to be more than one way to weigh whales, you know? And, and it, they can't just all be deceased whales that they're weighing, right? So our question to you outside in is how do they weigh whales, you know? Where there's a whale, there's a way, but how? Where there's a whale, there's a way. Sam, Sam, <laughs> Sam do you know where to weigh a whale? What? Do you know where you weigh a whale? In the, there's some speech impediment. In the whale way station. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know where you weigh a pie? Oh In the pie. Somewhere over the rainbow. Weigh a pie. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Been saving that one for weeks. Uh, so, we, uh, full disclosure, we we saw this question before it came in, and we asked them to record it because they sent it in as an email first. So we've already spent some time debating this. Yeah, we broke the rules. We broke the rules. Where do you want to start? I want to start with your theory. Me? Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> so when I was a kid, my first science fair project was uh, how to weigh your hand. Because you can't weigh your hand because it flops around on a scale and the weight's going to change. There's no way to actually just put your hand on a scale. And it said in this science book from 1991, you just put some water in a bucket on a scale and then tear it, make it zero, and then put your hand in the bucket of water. And the result is how it, much it changes is the weight of your hand. My hand was about a pound. So then, so then we just got to take the, take the whale, yeah. put it in a swimming pool that we already know the weight of, right. and it's sitting on top of a scale. Yes. And then put the whale in that swimming pool and then weigh the swimming pool again. Yeah. What's the problem? <laughs> how do you how do you weigh a swimming pool? Well, that's, you know. But this goes back to Archimedes, right? This is he's sitting in the bathtub. He's got a crown, he's trying to find out if it's gold or not, and he's like, "What am I going to do with this thing?" And he, and suddenly he says, "Eureka, I found it." You know, uh water displacement is yeah. the same as weight. But but so so okay so this is where we all got very confused <laughs> because because water displacement works if the thing is floating, not if the thing sinks to the bottom. And so the Archimedes crown thing, he weighed the crown and then took the volume of the crown and then f- from that could figure out the density of the crown and that's how he knew whatever it was fake or whatever it was. But so here's the question with whales, right? Which is that is there a tank somewhere big enough? Where, where they're measuring, you know, like the, the semi-truck weigh station where they can weigh the whole truck. Is there something equivalent in the world that you can put a whale in? And I think the answer is no. My, my theory is they're just doing this with math. I think there must be someone out there who's weighed a live whale. <laughs> Smaller ones, smaller it's like ones. minky whales. Yeah. yeah, but I think I think we're talking about the, the in the question they were like the biggest whale ever. Right, so the blue whale. Yeah. You know that the elephant weighs more, weighs less than a whale's tongue? What? The average elephant weighs less than a, than a blue whale's tongue. Really? Yeah. I heard that. <laughs> How would anyone know that? Who's weighing whale tongues? How do you weigh a whale tongue? <laughs> At the whale tongue weigh station. I Okay, uh, bad news on this one. The answer is, in fact, more math. Oh. That's okay. I'm ready for it. Okay. I got in touch with a gentleman named Michael Moore, not to be confused with the polemicist documentarian. Uh, he is the director of the Marine Mammal Center at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute. Hui. <laughs> Hui. Uh, he's been called the whale coroner. This is the guy who, if a whale washes up on the beach, he's one of the most uh, prominent people who gets called. Um, and for starters, perhaps this is obvious. They do, in fact, weigh 
some dead whales. We can't do it very often for a number of logistical reasons, one of which is that if the animal is decomposed, then obviously you've lost a fair amount of body fluids that have liquidized uh, during the time that it's been in the water and especially on the beach. If they've been rolling around in surf, they get pulverized such that it's kind of like standing on a toothpaste tube and over a period of about even hours you can lose 80% of the volume of the whale as it comes out as sort of blended whale oil and, and muscle. It's delightful. Uh, it's a sort of red toothpaste coming out of the mouth, mainly. It's, it's grim. It's grim humor here. <laughs> yeah, really. Uh, so they really only weigh the fresh ones. I'm really <sighs> horrified by that description. A tube of toothpaste. Uh, but to weigh a whale, they can use uh, the boat slings that they mm. have for, for lifting up big boats. You can roll it out to, onto the beach, load the whale under, or slip the slings under the whale and lift them up. And that those a lot of those have scales on them. Or you can load the whale onto the, the bed of a flatbed truck and take the truck through a weigh station, and that'll that'll give you a weight as well. I do in, I do fantasize about the guy working the weigh station that day. It was like, oh, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> You're 20 pounds over, buddy. Let's have a look at what you got back. <laughs> oh, oh, good Lord. <laughs> a Leviathan. <laughs> so what that does is it gives them a nice round number for a given whale species density, and then what they do next for most whales, for most of their measurements, is they use a drone that has a nice flat lens for its camera so there's no distortion and has a very accurate altimeter. And with and then they just fly it over the whale and they take a picture and they go back to the lab and they count how many pixels uh, long that whale is. And you do that for the length of the animal and the width. And ideally, if the animal rolls on its side, the height as well. So every 10% all the way down the animal, you get these estimates of length and width. And that allows you to then calculate the volume of the animal. And once you've got the volume, you can then translate that into a weight. So math. I'll try not to spike the ball in the end zone here. There's no displacement. There's no golden (laughs) whale in a bathtub. (laughs) No draining the ocean to weigh all of the ocean. Yeah. Just much more boring math. Counting pixels. I wonder if I could count you with pixels and come up with an accurate. I bet you could. That's interesting. It would be not a fun way to spend an evening. <laughs> Let's count some pixels. For that. <laughs> okay, ready? Hey, Sam, um, and the whole outside in team. Um, I love you guys a lot. <clears throat> my name is Oliver. I'm calling from Chicago. Chicago. And my question is Is it worse environmentally? to use a paper towel and throw it away or use your sink. So if I have something on my hand, should I run the water and waste the water to wash it down? Or should I, would it be more environmentally friendly if I took a paper towel and wiped it off? Um, thanks guys. Oh, thank you. A paper towel is not going to take all the things (laughs) off. You need water. Your hand is not clean if you're just wiping it with a dry paper towel. This is sort of the bidet toilet paper debate right here. (laughs) This is why I'm grateful for Oliver from the city of Broad Shoulders because I have such strong feelings about the bidet and uh, I've tried to convert everybody. In fact, fact, just today, my friend in Los Angeles will be receiving a secretly gifted bidet that I mailed him from Amazon. Wait. Not a whole bidet. Like no, a an bid- attachment that you okay, put onto your toilet. Like, like the Japanese smart toilet yeah, seat. Yeah. yeah, but it's 26 bucks and it's just cold water. But uh, I, have, I have eliminated almost entirely the use of toilet paper in my home. And the question I was wondering is, is it better to use all that water, which you have to leave on for a little bit, 
versus using toilet paper? Yeah, I mean, I think this is definitely an answerable question, and someone will have done the the life cycle analysis that that we could, because because what you have to know is you have to know how much how much sort of like energy resources et cetera it takes to make paper and get it to you, yeah, and then you have to compare that to the amount of energy it takes to to you know pump fresh water into your house. But I feel like to to really know this, you've got to know what's on his hand. Agreed. <laughs> totally agree. What could you get on your hand that a paper towel would take off without any water being Crumbs. involved? Crumbs. Crumbs. <laughs> <laughs> if I just ate like a muffin. I have a roundabout question too. A spill. Oh no, a spill on my counter. Uh, if I use just a paper towel to wipe it up versus a sponge that I squeeze out and rinse in the sink. Which uses which is better for the environment? I so m- my theory, and I don't know this. I think someone will have done the math. Is that the water, generally speaking, is going to be less energy? And then there's like this tricky corollary, which is that water's not equal in all places, right? So so we live in a very water rich part of the world. Uh, you know, for the water that comes to my tap, all it has to do is run through. You know, run through a very efficient pump that's down in the well. It comes into the house. There's a there's a pressure tank that pressurizes the water in the house, and then it comes comes to the sink, and that's all all that happens. And then it runs out through the septic system and drains through the leach field, and like it's a very small amount of energy in a system like that. Versus if you're in you know L.A. and they have to like pipe it from the Colorado right. River over the mountains <laughs> through a series of pumps, like that water is is much more expensive and and uh, you know and precious than than our abundant water. But they so, also don't have all of the trees to then make paper towels. <laughs> you can't make a paper towel out of a palm tree. Right. So it might be better to use a tree in Los Angeles. Right. Versus here, it might be better to use the water. Or how about a towel that you just like wash and reuse? <laughs> how about that? Do you have a bidet at your house? So, so my parents just moved into their retirement home, and one of the things my mom was adamant is she wanted a bidet, and so they have a bidet seat at. Uh, the, and I have I have experienced it. I will agree there are upsides. Uh-huh. I don't think there's a downside. <laughs> it's so a far. little unsettling. Oh, so is life. <laughs> Let me ask you a hypothetical, Sam. Can I ask you a hypothetical, okay. and we'll continue? Yeah. So somebody walks up to you and just smears some poop in your armpit. <laughs> What are you going to do? Are you going to just take some paper and wipe it off and be like, that's good. I'm good. I'm going to go walk around all day. Is that what you do? You can get yours at 1-800-bidet.com. Offer code Capadice. Are you familiar with the field of life cycle assessment? No. Basically, it's looking at... um, our products, our consumer products from cradle to grave. That is Dr. Mary Ann Curran, a former EPA scientist and currently editor-in-chief of the International Journal of Life Cycle Assessment. So it's an analysis from from the production, the manufacture of a product to its use, to its disposal, and what are the environmental impacts throughout the entire life of that product. Great. And this is what we were talking about with the paper towel, for example. Yeah, yeah. And in this analysis, here's the tricky part, is they don't just say like, Here's the number. 
the environmental impact number. They grade these products on a number of different uh, categories, including, and it can be many, many categories. So human toxicity, eutrophication potential, radiation potential, energy use, land use, all of these different things. Uh, and they're incredibly granular. They're almost unreadable as someone who has read a number of them. Uh, but but there is this pressure from outsiders like us and, and you know general consumers who just want to know if they're being good people to distill that down into one number. So we come up with these these single taglines, and it's really frustrating to me because I, I think it's a good starting point, you know, and that's, that gets you to that what they call that wicked problem. That wicked problem. That wicked problem. Is she from New Hampshire? <laughs> um, <clears throat> paper towels versus water use, right? right. Uh, paper towels, you get into the manufacture of pulp wood, which gets into forestry impacts, which gets into, you know, how that impacts wildlife habitat. And so coming up with one number to compare that to just, say, the electricity used to heat your bidet seat uh, can be quite complicated. (laughs) My bidet seat is not heated, nor is the water that comes out of it. (laughs) But that said... Marianne has herself done life cycle analyses of uh, different types of recycled and non-recycled paper products, and there is one pretty surprising takeaway from that work. Paper production takes a lot of water, too. There's an estimate floating around the internet, uh, which I don't know if it's... I've seen it cited in many, many different articles. This number is that it one roll of toilet paper takes 37 gallons of water to produce. Wow. That is a lot. Uh, but... But. I did press her a little bit here. If you were to get something on your hands that would be easily taken off with a paper towel, would you use a paper towel or would you go to the sink? Oh. Uh. <laughs> Put me on the spot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I was hesitating because I would I would go to the sink. Yeah. Um, because so even though it's difficult to take all that data and information that a life cycle assessment would generate, you know, it's hard to distill it for consumers to use. But over the years, you can kind of see the direction that has the fewest processes within it mm. is going to be less impactful. The more processes you add to that flow, the more impact you're going to have. So for me to, you know, there's water comes to my house. I use it. It goes down the sink. It's very straightforward. Now somebody got a paper towel, which came from a paper plant, which came from tree harvesting, you know. There's just, in my mind, there's more impact. You can kind of do these rules of thumb. I managed to extract a single rule of thumb. <laughs> Which oh, is? Not something we're supposed to say. Oh, right. Oh, no, we can say that. Oh, we that's, can? That's, that's, that's etymological folklore. <gasps> Either way, I don't actually know what her takeaway there was. Well, her takeaway is that, that if, you just, if you're looking for shorthand, uh, that, that something that involves fewer processes is likely to come out better in a life cycle analysis than something that involves more processes. Have, are you going to get a bidet now, Sam? I will confess that I, I have thought that would not be a bad purchase. It's going to change your life. <laughs> All right. Thank you, friends. Thank you, Sam. This was a pleasure. Sam, there's a bunch of anthills that have like suddenly small ones like this big. Like everywhere. In the studio? No. (laughs) (laughs) Outside In was produced this week by me, Sam Evans-Brown, with help from Jimmy Gutierrez, Nick Capodice, Justine Paradise, and Taylor Quimby. Our executive producer is Erica Janik. Maureen McMurray is the director of Comic Relief. 
If you'd like to get your question on Ask Sam, call the hotline. The number is 1-844-GO-OTTER. Or you can record a voice memo and send it to outsidein at nhpr.org. I answer one question on our local airwaves every other week, so we're always looking for good questions. Special thanks to our listeners who have stepped up in a big way this month. Remember, we're hoping to get over 1% of our subscribers to support the show. So do your part right now, even if it's just five bucks. You can check out our thank you gifts at outsideinradio.org. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. 